Hello everybody, today we are going to be focusing on cameras. This is the first and what's probably going to become a series of ultimate camera episodes where Dustin and I talk about everything and anything that we know about imaging in the hobby of amateur astronomy. And so today, this episode will focus a lot on the characteristics and the generalities of CCDs. We'll talk about some of the pluses and minuses of things like CMOS and charge coupled device cameras and let you know what those actually are. The hope is that you'll find this series of podcast episodes instructive and helping you understand not only just what camera to buy for your hobby, but also some of the pluses and minuses of some of the cameras that are out there and their designs. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Space Junk. Today is the ultimate camera episode. We're going to talk about cameras this entire time. Imaging, what you've got to do. We're going to go through some of the characteristics of cameras, some things you want to look at, some basics, and some also some advanced tips and techniques for imaging. So I'm really excited to get started at this because, as all of you know, who follow Space Junk at any length of time, Dustin's the imager. And I'm the visual observer. And so this is going to be Dustin's chance to shine. I'm going to is that also what this is? Qu- That's right. This is your chance. <laughs> okay. This is your sp- time in the, in the spotlight, so to speak. So I guess we're going to break this up into a little, into some various segments here. So we're going to start, first of all, talking about the main types of cameras. There's several types. Um, and there's, uh, well, why don't you give us a brief, a brief intro into some of these cameras? There's so much to unpack here. Right, but there's so yeah, many. Yeah, I know. Different... I want to try and do it in an organized way. Yeah. If we can. and we will. But we Hopefully should probably we'll preface it. this with: this is the ultimate camera episode, part one, because I'm sure there are going <laughs> <laughs> to sure there are going to yeah. be several or several thousand of these several ultimate episodes yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> necessary to really unpack all of this. There's so much to learn about cameras. You know, we do OPT University every single day for our staff. And I yeah, when say, I was there, I saw you doing it. It was pretty cool. Yeah, probably 30 to 40% of those are still just covering cameras and sensors and how the technology works and all of that. So there is a lot to unpack. But yes, we can uh, we can dive in. And I think the way to organize it is we start at the ground floor, right? Just photography yes. in general and the type that people are used to, for the most part, everyone that does astro, that I know at least, also does some level of other types of photography. So they understand things like DSLRs and mirrorless cameras, right? Okay. Not everybody in the world that's doing Astro, though, has an astronomy-dedicated camera because that's obviously a new expense and something that it has a sole purpose. It lacks the versatility that I would say a DSLR offers. And that's why most people that get started start with the Milky Way and they start with a DSLR. So maybe that's the best place to start. That's a pretty new development. DSLRs used to be very noisy and they were very they were very uh, you know not ideal for low light situations, but all of that's changed now, right? Yeah, and they're still not ideal. 
You know, they're still not ideal for astronomy, but what I really like about them is the versatility. I like the price and I like the versatility and the, you know, more than probably both of those, I like the simplicity. And so here's the big difference when we're talking about, so the first one, the, the first category is really, I should say DSLR, you know, and mirrorless, they kind of fit into the same thing. Really mirrorless is just the next step in, you know, toward the future in DSLR. So they've gotten rid of the mirror, the less moving parts inside. And because your eye is seeing in the electronic viewfinder, it's seeing exactly what the sensor is seeing. You can actually see your image before you take it in real time. And that's the big distinguishing factor between the two. DSLRs use a mirror to, it hangs down in front of the sensor so that the actual light coming through the lens goes up to your eye and you can take the photo that way. And when you take the picture, the mirror gets out of the way and it lets the light hit the sensor instead for whatever your exposure time is. And that's that click you always hear. It's the mirror going up and down again at whatever exactly. exposure time you have. Exactly. Yes. You have the click. You have two, two things move. You have a shutter and you have the mirror. Right. And um, mm -hmm. with a mirrorless camera, you don't have that mirror. So you don't have movement, which, you know, from a from a very obvious side of it for astronomy or for really any type of photography, moving parts are not a good thing inside of a camera if you can avoid them because you don't want vibration. The whole the whole point is to have a completely stable image that is tack sharp in any level of vibration is going to, you know, compromise that. So. That's really the advantage of mirrorless, I'd say, is that it's less moving parts and the fact that the sensor is actually reading to your eye instead of the light coming through the lens so that you can see if you make changes to the camera settings, you can see those changes in real time before you ever push the button. And so that's category number one. The second category against those two, I would say, if this was a versus, you know, a boxing match, it would be DSLR and mirrorless versus astronomy dedicated cameras. And I can tell you, you know, uh, <laughs> just uh, a quick spoiler alert, the astronomy dedicated camera wins. Yeah, <laughs> hey, we'll get into why that is. By a lot, right, just they do. <laughs> absolutely beats down the other ones. Um, but it does, it lacks versatility. So Let's talk about DSLR and mirrorless and why people start there. I think the, f okay. the first reason is because everybody owns one. And if you don't own one, you probably know somebody that does. You can buy these things anywhere. They're, they're easy to find. They're, they're very accessible, you know, both with price point and just popularity. I mean, you can get these things in Walmart. You can get these things at Best Buy or anywhere. They're everywhere. And so people know the names. It's household names like Canon and Nikon. Sony and, you know, Fuji, who actually just their stock just rose above Canon, which makes them, you know, the major player now. Um, but all of these cameras are people can find them or they already have them. And so that's why they're the starting places. It's like use the tool you have. Right. If you're trying to test the waters with something, you don't go out and spend a couple thousand dollars if you don't even know, especially if you already have something that can do the job. It doesn't mean it's going to do it as well. But, you know, I kind of with the staff, I say it's kind of like using a tennis racket in baseball. Like you can swing it and hit the ball and you will make the ball move. It's not going to do nearly as well as a baseball bat, you know, but yeah. you can do it. It's just not designed specifically for it. But what it does have that astronomy dedicated cameras don't is that they're very smart. 
there's a ton of technology built into DSLRs. Have you seen any of the like the most modern releases, the new Sony A7S or any of these? Oh no, I don't have a lot of cameras like that on my in, around here. I can't really afford them. Mm-hmm. But the I, I had some of the older, like the last the last DSLR I had was a Canon Rebel. I think it was a EOS. It was a EOS five something like that. Yeah. I forget the the number I have, but that was, that was it. So no, I'm not familiar with the latest and greatest. The, these cameras have gotten very techie and very good. I mean, everything's like wireless now and uh, the sensors are incredible, but the real difference is that you have the computer built into the camera. So a lot of the things you're going to have to do in astronomy dedicated cameras, like dark frame subtraction and, you know, building your bias library and all that stuff, the camera's already doing for you. On top of that, you have basic controls, like turning the camera on and off. Astronomy-dedicated cameras don't even have on-off switches. <laughs> if, That's right. If you plug it in, it's on. And if you unplug it, it's off, right? And so yeah. you have to have a computer to run your astronomy-dedicated camera or something similar. You could have like a little Raspberry Pi device or something to run it, whereas a DSLR or mirrorless camera has a screen on it so you can see your photos after you take them. It will partially process your photos for you. It will take dark frame subtraction for you, which in a camera is going to say long exposure noise reduction. That's what that is. It takes a dark frame, which is a frame with no light, so that anything that shows up in the frame that registers as light, it subtracts it out of your actual images so that it can take out all that noise buildup from the sensor. And some cameras, some DSLRs actually have an astrophotography mode in them now. This mm-hmm. is like a brand new thing I've noticed or I've been reading about. And that does a lot of that too, right? The dark subtraction you were talking about and yeah. the, the noise suppression, things like that, right? It's like, it's, I mean, it's like partial software built into it, astronomy software built into it. Like the intervalometer on Fuji cameras, I know for sure. And then Sony, I mean, that's built into the camera now. So I can set the camera up if I want to shoot, say, four hours of Milky Way. Without a computer or anything, I can set it up on my tracker and set it to run 30-second exposures, and I want 100 of these, and I want it to run at you know with these gaps in between, and it will do that without any computer or anything else attached to it. And so that's what I mean. Like Some of the stuff that is built into the software that you buy for astronomy is already built into these cameras. So as far as versatility goes, it's pretty amazing that you can take that out, do all of that. Then take the camera off the next day and go to the zoo with it and take pictures. (laughs) Right, but I want to ask you about the file formats it gives you. If it does all this on the fly and it has all this computational ability in the camera, the only cameras I've ever used give me JPEG images out. Um, is that, are there other file formats you can get from different, uh, from different Oh no, these cameras, yeah, these are, these are professional cameras. Like even the basic, uh, Canon and Nikon, even their, their lowest in stuff now will give you raw file capability. Okay. So, you know, so there's the, you do get raw files out of these that you can then take out and do something with. Okay. You do. And for anyone that doesn't know, you want to explain the difference, Tony, on what, uh, JPEGs and raw files are? Well, yeah, so any, we all know JPEGs. We're very familiar with those. But that is a compressed image. It is a, in order to make them smaller, because these camera, these camera chips are so large, uh, they, they take up a lot of space. They're megabytes, tens of megabytes, some cases gigabytes large. And so what a JPEG image will do is compress the noise. or Actually, it'll throw away a lot of the noise and then compress the signal down as much as it can, which means that you're throwing away information 
right? And it's based on whatever algorithm is using. In this case, it's the JPEG algorithm. It does a good job uh, to make file sizes small, but you're still not getting everything you took. It's deciding what to throw away. And that's called lossless, I'm sorry, lossy compression. And so you're, you're missing stuff. A the, the raw data is the data that comes out of the camera itself. Maybe some of this processing has been done like dark subtraction or whatever, but it's the full, it's the full data that the, that the sensor took. And that is the most valuable stuff. Nothing's been thrown away. That's what professionals want because they have the full range of signal that they took and then they can take it themselves after the fact and make it better with their own processing, whether it's in Photoshop or in the case of uh, image processing for astronomy software. So, And that's what's interesting is that the raw data out of the camera actually generally does not look as good. It's never as contrasty. It's, you know, the colors are generally not quite as saturated, but that's because all of the data is there and the cameras are actually better than we need them to be. They have more dynamic range than we actually need. So when you process, you know, in quotes, an image, it is, you know, not processing the data to have more data or to show more of what's there. It's actually throwing data away or compressing the image to only highlight the data within that that you want. So processing an image is generally throwing the data away, the extra data away. You can't create yeah. new data, but you can throw data away to highlight and accentuate the things that you want to see. But an algorithm like JPEG or PNG or even GIF, all of those, those are algorithms that decide how to compress the image for you. And you don't have any control over that. Maybe you have a quality slider where you can adjust the quality. A uh, 100% quality means basically it's not going to do any compression. And a 50% quality means it's going to do a lot. But what it does exactly is embedded into the algorithm itself. JPEG does it differently than, than a GIF, for example. Uh, and for a long time, nobody could use GIF because it was proprietary. <laughs> and they charged. I forget who owned it. But it was uh, uh, they owned it. You couldn't legally use the GIF image for many, many years on the internet. And of course, PNG came along as a better compression to JPEG, which also had an alpha channel, which is why that's so popular. So, so all of these algorithms do throw away data, but you don't have any control over how. And so if you get these raw images, you have complete control. And that's why I was asking about these file formats. All I had ever seen <laughs> in some of my cameras, because they're low end, is JPEGs. And so it looks like the higher end gives you but it's not fits, is it? We'll get to file formats in a minute, but it's just, it's their own. Is it a proprietary format? For some, or like it, Fuji, a... Fuji has their own. Uh, just about all of them will produce TIFF files. Uh, but yeah. And TIFF is, is, is lossless. It is, uh, it is a lossless file format. And they're huge. Yeah, they are. So They're very big. Okay. And I mean, they, the cameras have gotten so high resolution that there's so much data there anyway that if you're buying a, a DSLR or mirrorless camera now, you are going to need some hard drive space because the, yes. these files are big. And um, it's going to take up a lot of space, but that's what you want. It's like Tony was saying, you want all of that data so that you can decide what you want to keep in the image. You don't want to start with less data because then you have no room to work and to process it. And that's especially true if you're doing science, but it's also equally, it's very much true uh, in, in, in just doing professional uh, processing for pretty images as well. Yeah, absolutely so we necessary for astronomy because you're taking pictures yeah. of black sky. If you don't have enough data there, you're not going to be able to pull out any detail. 
yeah, your signal is so low anyway. You want to keep every single photon you've, you've taken. Exactly. So, uh, and, and be very careful with what you've got. So I'm, I consider myself a, a, a newbie, a neophyte when it comes to DSLR. So I'm going to just say a really obvious thing that maybe a lot of people are thinking that because I think these things. And so I'm just going to say it in case you are and you're too embarrassed to say it. A DSLR is not the kind of those old point and shoot cameras. These are the kind of cameras you see in the store that have the detachable lenses, right? You can take the lens out and put a different lens on the camera body. That stands for digital single lens reflex. And that that's the style of camera we're talking about. In case you're just brand new to this, you don't know what a DSLR is. I just wanted to say the word so you can kind of visualize the kind of camera we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's what you see where the lenses come off. They're interchangeable. You put different lenses and you see these everywhere. You know, you go anywhere where there's tourists and you see them hanging around people's necks. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you're holding They're a the... map, you also have a DSLR. You know, yes. and 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 a real advantage to these is you can buy a lens that goes on to your camera body. That's essentially a little mini telescope, anyway. And you can take uh, uh, nightscapes of uh, with with that telescope with no or with that setup with no additional equipment, which is really kind of cool. That's right. That's right. And again, it's not about you know um, the cameras not being good. I mean, one of my most expensive cameras is actually my mirrorless camera. And it's one that I use all the time for, I use it for all of the types of shooting I do, um, including some of the Astro stuff I do. But, you know, that's a, just the camera body is about $10,000. It's a, a, a Fuji hundred megapixel mirrorless camera, but you know, it is really, really great at what it does, but a thousand dollar astronomy dedicated camera will absolutely beat it at astronomy compared to what it can do. I use that for the things that I where that versatility is really what I'm after. It's like, well, I want to take this on a trip with me, but I want to shoot the Milky Way while I'm there, you know, and I, I don't want to set up a computer and all of this when I'm just going to be on a tripod. It's not going to be a big, you know, setup time. And so that's, that's the advantage is it's not that these cameras aren't good. They are phenomenal. And for versatility, there's no astronomy dedicated camera in the world that's going to beat it. But if you're looking for a camera that's going to perform for astronomy, specifically the absolute best it can, you can generally spend less money and get more for that money than with something like a mirrorless or a DSLR. Right. So if you've got a DS, if you've got a DSLR, by all means, bring it to the hobby yeah. and start using it um, and and uh, and start enjoying it. But now there's a next level here. And we let's let's talk. But before we talk about cool versus uncool, let's talk about the CCD versus CMOS mm -hmm. detectors. These are the kinds of detectors that you see in cameras. The DSLRs typically have CMOS detectors in them. And in case you don't know, uh, it stands for Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductor. I looked it up. That's what CMOS stands for. Um, and that's and there's also a different kind of sensor, which is called a charge couple device or a CCD. Yeah. And so one is really smart and one is really dumb. And I prefer the dumb one. Uh, <laughs> so CMOS is the future. There's it makes you feel superior, right? You just feel better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> dumbass, dumbass detector. I'm better than you, man. <laughs> it's the one I can tell you though, it's the one that, you know, all the professionals, you know, when when NASA calls, they always want CCD still. They always do. Right. Um right. it's always the same stuff. 
And it's not just because of tradition. It's not just, well, this is what we've been using forever. Because CCD, I'm sure that's probably the only type of cameras that in your professional astronomy uh, career, Tony, that they ever used was CCD. Yes, that's all I've ever used. I've never used CMOS. And so 99% of the cameras that you'll see over the counter are going to be CMOS cameras. You know, all of the Panasonic and, you know, Olympus and Canon, all that stuff. It's going to be CMOS sensors. And that is the future. Everything is going to move that direction because it's where all the funding is going. But CMOS detectors, basically, they have readout on chip, whereas CMOS, when I say CCD is is dumb, it has a thing. It's it's really they call it a bucket brigade brigade readout, but basically, you just it is on and it's off, and there's nothing on the chip to add to the complexity, and so these chips can be binned on chip very easily and actually maximize the full benefit of binning on chip, whereas CMOS cannot. Um, And so the two, the way that I describe this to the team is that when you're looking at the two, CMOS really, really rewards you for short exposures. I mean, these cameras have incredible quantum efficiency uh, and we'll get into all that. Like we're jumping ahead a few steps, but they have incredible sensitivity. They are very inexpensive. I mean, you can get a 60 megapixel full frame camera for $4,000. If you tried to do that in CCD, you'd be $20,000 deep into it. And so it's just, um, it's... And the reason for that is the way they're manufactured, right? A a CMOS detector is manufactured using a lot of standard silicon. Basically, the way microprocessors, like what Intel and and, uh, AMD and those guys use, those manufacturing processes... They use in CMOS exactly. manufacturing, allowing them to be cheaper. CCDs are specialized and so much more expensive. Now, did you just say CMOSs were were smarter than CCDs or the other way around? CMOSes. Is smarter. Is smarter. See, yeah. I, I take issue with that because the CCDs have to have embedded in them this readout capability. They have that bucket brigade you were talking about where you read it out one row at a time and then each pixel at a time comes out into the amplifier. That has to have the, the circuitry for doing that plus the A to D converter that converts that charge to a number. So I kind of think CCDs are smarter. Well, both have than, that, but, but what I'm saying is having the processors on chip is why I'm saying it's smarter. And I don't, I don't think it's oh. a better way to do it. I still, my observatory still use CCD cameras. I actually prefer right. that because I do really long exposures on everything. And I'm going to have to change. I'm going to have to start doing shorter exposures and those things. And there's nothing wrong with it. You can absolutely do that. It's just a different style of shooting. And I like the benefit of maximizing signal as far as possible per exposure exposure um and pulling in that you know that ccd data but it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with doing it the other way and i've actually seen most of the apods coming in recently have been with cmos cameras because it's where the mass market is and it's where these sensors especially with that readout capability because both have to read out right but with the way they're manufactured Sony, Canon, all of them, they're making their sensors that they can be used across multiple industries, biomedical, uh, consumer, astronomy, all of this stuff. They're sharing the same exact sensors, so they stamp out hundreds of thousands or even millions at a time. And CCD was never doing that. Right. 
Yeah, and the, and the readout times are much longer on CCDs, and because th that is the big difference. CCDs do it one pixel at a time, or in the case if you've got, sometimes they'll split the chip up. In fact, the bigger CCDs they yeah, do, they have to. They split it up into quadrants, and they have like four amplifiers, four A to D converters, and they read it. They read the chips out, at, you know, four quadrants at a time, or sometimes mm -hmm. even more, sixteen quadrants. Yeah. Uh, but a CC of a CMOS chip, it's all read out in big chunks. Big chunks of the CCD are read out at one time. All the wires the are connected CMOS. straight. Of the CMOS, that's right. Uh, it's all it's all read out at one time, and but that's noisier than reading out a CCD the way with the bucket brigade. So CMOS chips are noisier, which is why you say they reward you with short exposure lengths, mm -hmm. exposure times. That's why they're noisier in their readouts than CCDs are. And so um, that's one big disadvantage in my mind to CMOSs versus CCD. Yeah, and you know, the other thing is with CCD, when you are, so I have a camera here that's called a, an FLI 5100, and it does exactly what you're describing. It's CCD, but because it's so big, so it's twice the size of full frame, right? They do exactly what you're talking about. Instead of making you wait, you know, 20 years... <laughs> <laughs> for this thing to it's read out <laughs> no. <laughs> no um but it, it does take forever but instead of making you wait to read this thing out what they do is they split the readout to half the sensor at a time but that makes your calibration of that sensor which is not something astronomy cameras do on their own that much more important because you can see yeah. those two readouts they're not identical and so one that's true the amplifiers are different exactly right. so they look slightly different and if you don't balance that with bias darks and flats then you know your image is always going to be split down the middle and have two different shades to it and so it's yeah. it's an easy i mean anybody that's shooting astronomy gets those calibration frames down in the first week they're shooting it's not a problem it's very simple to do but it does yeah. become critical when you have multiple readouts that's true. And you can see that in the raw chip. You look at a raw readout of a CCD, you'll see one segment of the, say it's like four amplifiers that split into four quadrants. One quadrant is noticeably brighter than another quadrant. Well, that's the amplifier difference. That's the the, the gain uh, difference between the different amplifiers. And you need to correct for that. Uh, but it's easy. It's trivial to do. Yeah. Uh, but it is still an issue. And, and even with that, though, the noise from the CCD is less than what you're going to get from a CMOS camera. Yeah. Um, it's just, that's just the way it is. But, and, and what about the, um, so we know that CMOSs are in DSLRs. We know there's plenty of astronomy brands and we'll get to brands later that, that feature CMOS chips. And there's even some telescopes like Stellina. We talked about that last time. They use CMOS chips. Uh, do they all have this thing called a Bayer matrix on it? And maybe we want to talk about what that is. So no. or is that just, is that only, do they, do, are, there CC, are there CMOS detectors that don't have a Bayer matrix? Yes, there are. There are monochrome oh, CMOS okay. detectors. Um, so a Bayer matrix, and that's what we were about to get in. So let's let's take one step back before we move forward here. So DSLR and mirrorless, we covered that. Now astronomy right. dedicated, because that's what we're okay. really comparing, right? And astronomy that's dedicated right. is exactly what you're describing now, where most people, what they really look for is two things to make something astronomy dedicated. The first is cooling, and cooling is so unbelievably important. It's the reason earlier that I said you can get a much less expensive camera that's going to outperform one of these really expensive cameras like like the Fujifilm I was describing, right? Um, and I would recommend that over going out and buying a really expensive camera like that for astronomy. I'd recommend go buy the eight, $800 camera. Don't buy the $10,000 camera because it will give you better images if you can cool. Like how hot is it there in Florida right now, Tony? Oh, God, you don't want to know. It's 95 with a heat index of 102, I think. So now take a camera sensor out there 
and run a long exposure with it where you're heating up the sensor the whole time and it's 90 degrees outside and you're, you're going to get yeah. an all white image of nothing but noise. That's right. So, Thermal noise. Yeah. It's, that's, it's another inherent issue of chips. That's right. And that's the problem. So the cameras themselves, they, they have a simple function. The sensors themselves have a simple function. They are going to take photons in, convert those photons to electrons and quantify it for you. And that's what these that's what these detectors do. Like that's what a photosite does. A photosite is a pixel. Okay, so yep. that's our vocabulary for sensors. The pixel, what its job is, is taking a, a photon, a, a source of light, and then convert that to an electron so that we can read it out and say, in this bucket, in this photon, we col- or in this uh, pixel, we collected four photons. And then the one next to it, we collected eight. And it's going to do that across the whole chip. And that's how you see where the brightness is, where you know the colors are, all of that stuff using what you described, the Bayer matrix. You can see this image is that each pixel does that job of quantifying electrons and telling us here's where the brightness was in the image. You know, And so doing that, we have this simple problem where if that's its job, then the real only challenge it has is determining, was this actually light? Was this actually a photon? And a lot of times the answer is no. And one of the things that causes that to trick the camera is heat. And so with a lot of heat buildup inside the camera, it will sometimes trigger a response to start quantifying that heat as electrons inside the camera will start quantifying it as light when it's actually not. And so it will, yeah, even if it's completely dark, yeah. this will happen. You could have the, yeah, you could have the cap on the camera, everything, have it in a completely dark room that's hot or just heat the camera up with a long exposure. And when you look at the image, it's going to have all these pixels lit up. And so that's thermal noise. That's from heat in the sensor. And so it can't tell the difference between that light and the heat. And so it just registers as light. And that's a problem. But one of the ways you can, uh, you can you know, get rid of some of that issue is by doing what we talked about earlier, taking dark frames that subtract that out after the fact. But the other one is just cool the camera down. And these coolers are really, really powerful. I mean, they will cool the camera down 25 degrees, you know, 30, some of them 45 degrees. And so just that change alone makes these cameras infinitely more valuable for astronomy, especially in hot weather, so that you can use them year round. But even in cool weather, being able to do long exposures and not have that thermal noise just completely fill your your image it makes it such a huge difference when you start stretching an image and trying to process it that you don't have all of this crunchy data all over your image that just looks like <laughs> yeah yeah I hate crunchy data yeah it's like it's all <laughs> over your image and the more you stretch the image the more you try to process it the more bad it looks and so that is why coolers on cameras for long exposures make such a huge difference why it's so important and when you say 25 30 degrees you're talking about from ambient. from ambient, so if yeah. it's ninety degrees outside, it'll cool it to you know say uh, thirty or thirty yeah. degrees below ninety. So exactly, yeah, it's not uh, minus thirty so, right. from zero. Right, right, which would be great. I mean, I don't think you can cool these things too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, ideally, freezing. you want zero thermal noise, yeah. and to do that, you need to get as cold as you possibly can. You could, some people even astronomers use liquid nitrogen. Yeah, so. yeah, we we actually have sold cameras to uh, to some of the institutions that that use that stuff, and I mean those are called spectral instruments cameras, but at least that's the brand. But you know, people will pay. That's how important an issue it is. People will pay you know two, three, four hundred thousand dollars for a single camera just because of its cooling 
processing ability to cool a big chip that much, that that's how big an issue, especially for science, that thermal noise can become. So it's very, very important consideration when you're talking about which camera am I looking for. Yeah. Um, the other one is and color. You know, you brought that up as a problem. Why, why do you see Bayer Matrix as a problem? No, I just wanted to talk about what they were. Um, well, the reason I think, if you want me to just jump ahead, I'll tell you why I think they're yeah, a problem. Yeah, there, there are these, there's these filters that give you color images in DSLRs and also in some astronomical cameras. These Bayer matrices are basically filters. Are I think they're RGGB or RGGB filters right. uh, over a series of pixels. And it's filtering the light for you onto the pixel and then interpolating it into a color image. Well, if you've got a certain, let's say, a, a, a 300 by 300 pixel uh, uh, CCD, you've, you've suddenly got, you know, you've, you're throwing away a lot of pixels for these different colors to get uh, this combined color pixel. So I think that's a disadvantage. I would rather that not happen. I would rather take my images full frame with, under a under a filter of my own than to have this happen for me. So that's why I think they're a disadvantage. But for CMOS cameras, they're an advantage because you get color photos almost instantly at the expense of resolution. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is that right? Is that how, is that how to put that? Yes. At the expense of <laughs> color resolution. Um, and yes. so, yeah, RGGB, that's exactly it. So red, green, green, blue. And for terrestrial shooting, for shooting on Earth, that makes a lot of sense, right? You want things to have, mm -hmm. you know, twice the green of everything else. If you've got to go across four pixels, it makes sense. Red, green, green, blue. You see a lot of green on this planet. Um, or at least out there where you are. You don't see much out here. It's mostly desert and, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, a lot of green here. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, red, green, green, blue. And that makes a lot of sense. So those are filters over every single pixel. But the problem is filters don't bring extra things in. What they do is reject things. That's right. That's and right. And so if you have a red pixel, or let's say this, for instance, let's say you got two green pixels. For every four pixels on your camera, two of those four are green. So half of the pixels on your camera are green. And so that means if it's a green pixel, it can't let in any red light or any blue light. So when you said it has to interpolate the data, if it strikes in every four pixels, half are green, the other one's blue. If you're trying to collect red light, only one in four pixels can even do that. So right out of the gate, you gave up 75% of your red light, just right off the top. Same thing with blue and 50% of the green. But here's the real issue is now when you look at space images, how much green do you really see? You know, depends, but if, if, if it's a nebula, you can see quite a bit, um, but you're right. It's not as much. The colors you see more of than anything else are red, right? Just about all nebulae are red. All the galaxies have red in them. Um, blue, same thing. Reflection. Look at Pleiades. I mean, the entire thing is blue. But there are very few, except for maybe like planetary nebulae, where you look at it and you're like, man, it's really dominated by green. You know, most of them are not dominated by green. And so while there's green in all of the stars, the point sources, all of those things, and there's a lot of green in space, you are giving up all of that nebulosity and the hydrogen that's red. You're giving up sensitivity to all of that by having this pattern, red, green, green, blue. And so right off the top, you're giving up 75, 80% of your data to this camera having to guess because three out of every four pixels cannot detect red light. So it has to find that one pixel and then guess at all of the in-between. And that's what, you know, Tony just said, interpolation. That's what that is. It's the camera guessing. So the alternative is what I'm sure that you were using in the pro space and what, you know, um, we typically use here is monochrome cameras 
for if you're trying to get the best data possible, you use a monochrome sensor, which sounds backwards because it's black and white. But what you do instead is you have this black and white sensor with none of the limitations of this red, green, green, blue pattern. And so now every single photo site, every single pixel has this has one function. Just count the photons. We don't care what color it is. Just count how many hit. Right. And so the whole sensor's job now is turned on to the resolution of whatever, whatever, what I'm sorry, whatever color you are shooting, the whole sensor can see it. And so then what you do instead to get your colors is just like the Bayer is doing. You just do that in steps. So you cover the whole sensor with a green filter. Then you cover the whole sensor with a red filter and then blue. And when you stack all those together, there's no guessing involved. Now you have a true color image that's actually more true color than the guessing that the color camera did. And you're using all of the pixels available to you, exactly. which is very important. So you've not, you've not sacrificed resolution. So instead of having this layer of filters over the chip already, over the sensor already, you have way more control with the CCD. And if you, if you look at these images, you take, you take a picture of uh, the Orion Nebula, let's say, with a red filter for 10, uh, let's say, about uh, 50 seconds, a minute or something like that, you're going to see uh, all of the Orion Nebula in black and white at that wavelength, but it'll be kind of dim than if you look at it in green, right? Or if you looked at it in a blue filter, but you would take all three of those same exposure photos under those different filters, put them together and you get the spectacular full resolution, everything that your CCD can give you picture of the Orion Nebula. And to me, that's why I prefer uh, CCDs over CMOS detectors. I mean, and, and that don't, uh, that have that Bayer matrix. Sure. Yeah. Color or monochrome over color. And so, um, there's another advantage, which is think about the creative control it gives you over your imaging as well. So what we just described is broadband imaging, red, green, and blue. That's the visible spectrum of the, uh, electromagnetic spectrum, right? So we got red, green, and blue. That's the visible light. But now we have two other options to us, which is one, we can open it up even more. We can put on one filter that encompasses all red, green, and blue, and lets all of the light from those channels, it still blocks out UV and IR, but it lets all of that light hit the sensor at once, and now we just got data that gives us a brightness value. And so that's called a luminance filter, but we can add that into our color image and brighten it up and get maximum detail so that we can provide full resolution of that target, whatever it is, you know, getting all of those colors at once and then just using it for our brightness adjustment, brightness level. But we can also go the other way and we can say, all right, I, I don't want to shoot just red, green, or blue. I want to shoot a really, really narrow sliver of red because I've got a street lamp out in front of my house that's putting off red light and I want to cut all of that out. So I'm going to do just a wavelength like hydrogen alpha that the street lamp isn't putting off, but the nebulae above me are. And then I can shoot right past the street lamp and shoot, you know, the Eagle uh, Nebula or the Orion Nebula or, or whatever by, you know, using something called narrow band. So instead of broadband, which is red, green and blue with luminance, now you're shooting narrow band, which is just a very narrow sliver of one of those spectrums. So just a narrow sliver of red would be like sulfur or hydrogen. You know, you can do the same thing with oxygen or nitrogen, but you can isolate what you want the entire sensor to read out. Yeah, and that's got advantages. Even though throwing away a lot of light sounds counterintuitive, 
whenever you've got a lot of light pollution nearby, it's almost required. You don't want all that noise in your image. But you, while you may be only getting a small sliver of that wavelength of those photons coming through, you're getting it on the whole chip. Again, you've not sacrificed any resolution here. It comes at the expense of exposure time. You need to spend more time collecting that feeble signal. But once you've done that, you get these sharp, crisp images that are only of the wavelengths that you're interested in. And it's just stunning. It's just amazing. And that's the two variables with astronomy-dedicated cameras that give you a new level of control as a photographer and open new doors. Mm -hmm. You're talking about cooling and you're talking about monochrome. You now have all of these new doors open to you of exposure time, which makes all the difference in the world. I mean, some of my, some of my photos are 90 hours long. Right. And you can do these really long, you know, one hour exposures and get away with it if you can control the temperature of the chip. And then the other thing is having that control of, you know, if I'm in I do a lot of my shooting from San Diego, a lot of it. And I've got a street lamp right outside my house. So being able to set up here, not have to drive to the desert. It's like, well, I can shoot from right here and know that I just I can't shoot broadband, but I can shoot narrowband and still get these really powerful color images um, without having to leave home. And that control is something that, you know, this stuff gives you. Absolutely. That's really, uh, it, it's, it, it's a whole new world when you're, I think when you're dealing with narrowband and that's something that's only recently become available with uh, filters like, you know, the, the ones that, that you guys put out in. Uh, yeah. The, we have multiple filters. So we have filters that are just going to isolate one channel. But then for people that say, well, I want to shoot color. I don't necessarily need it to be a DSLR, but I have a DSLR or whatever. Um, but I have a color sensor. Well, that's why we made the triad filter, the triad ultra filter, is because that's exactly what it does. Is It takes that broadband, you know, um, wave, those wavelengths, and then it isolates just the ones that you can get away with from the city. So hydrogen beta, hydrogen alpha, oxygen three, and sulfur two. And it splits those so that when you shoot through a color chip, whether it's a DSLR, a mirrorless, or a cooled um, astronomy-dedicated camera, then you can see those colors pop up onto that screen after every exposure instead of waiting or just seeing a black and white image on a monochrome camera. Of course, you're never going to get as much data with a color camera, but cameras are so good at interpolating now that I feel like it's still it's still an incredible experience. And being able to see something in color in near real time, I mean, that's that's tough to beat. And for outreach, I don't think you can beat it. People want to see color. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. You really can't. You you got to have some color for, for the for the people because it it just it brings in that that the vibrance of, of whatever it is you're looking at. So I agree. You got to have the color. Yeah. Okay. So let's okay. So let's go to um. What did you mean by specialty cameras, though? I, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So the, I'll cut the, this part this out. Is, but. No, it's fine. There. Um. So this is going to be a lot of episodes that we're we're doing on this, but let's. I know we're not we're not going to get through all this, are yeah, we? <laughs> that's okay. I actually want to have an episode where we talk about some of the processing uh, techniques as well to get some of those these things out. So uh, I, I, that just occurred to me as we were talking. So yeah, I think yeah, it's... this is not going to be one. Episode. <laughs> that's okay. We'll do we'll do a part two and a part three if we need to. So right, right. So camera types, like what are cameras used for? And here's what I would say to people: these are the types of shooting that people are doing and the types of cameras they're buying to do it okay so one would be milky way 
everybody's seen the Milky Way photos. I've seen a million of them, and I still every time right. I see one, my jaw drops. This is they're still they're among my favorite. I, I they're always it never gets old. To me. Never ever yeah. is going to get old. It's unreal that this is our galaxy and that we can see it like that. I mean, it's something out of science fiction, man. We just and you can do it in you know anywhere with a DSLR camera, right? It's amazing. Uh, right. So Milky Way. Planetary, which it kind of encompasses all of it. So I would say lunar. Um, I would also say like Saturn, Jupiter, Mars. Those are the ones that I think are really impressive. People are doing... And the sun too. Yeah, the sun. Absolutely. If you have the right telescope for it. Um, don't do that with a, <laughs> with a normal yeah, telescope. Right. We'll, we'll do a special episode yeah. on solar telescopes. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that with a normal telescope. Um, but yeah, so those I think are really incredible. And, you know, you can do planetary to the level that you can even see, like, let's say you're shooting Jupiter, you can not only see things like the red spot, you can actually see Jupiter's moons transit in front of the planet um, and cast shadows down onto the planet itself. Like it is truly incredible. So Milky Way, planetary, I'd say wide field, deep sky objects. That's a lot of the stuff I do. So these are the two categories I do is wide field and then long focal length. And they're both deep sky, but the real difference between the two is one is going to give you a perspective with a lot of context where it's a big chunk of sky. And then long focal length is high magnification. So you get more of the details in the actual object itself. But those are deep, both deep sky astrophotography. Help me understand the difference between what you mean by wide field. Are you talking about something that say, white would wide field encompass the entire uh, Orion Nebula, for example, or would it be like the Orion constellation. What do you mean by wide field in this context? So I think that most people would look at wide field and say focal lengths of generally like 200 millimeters up to probably like 650, 700 millimeters would be pretty wide field, you know, for most, oh, for see. most camera okay. sensors. But yes, that's a good way to describe it though, is let's say that my field of view on wide field is going to be the majority of the Orion constellation, right? Or something big like that. And then okay. my long focal length would be so magnified that it is just the Horsehead Nebula on the left star of Orion's belt. Just that. Got it. Yeah. Good. That helps me visualize what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, you have specialty cameras. And those cameras are designated to a particular function, like guiding cameras and polar alignment cameras. But those are, um, those are a little bit separate because neither of those do you keep the actual images. They just exist to serve the function to make the other camera perform better. That's yeah, it. they're just helping you do a job, exactly. like align your telescope or you know find a guide star or whatever. But those, I would say, those are the six types of cameras that you see most frequently. If you're not talking about science, if you talk about science, you get into spectroscopy and everything else. It's a little bit different. But um, for the types of photography that most people are doing, those are the six cameras that you'll see most frequently. Right. Okay. All of these different cameras that are that, that that you can take different pictures of. What are some of the the things that we need to consider as far as the 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 you know, some of the characteristics of these cameras? What are some of the things that are really important? So we'll run through Milky Way and planetary quickly because those are I'd say those are very very specific. So Milky Way, most people, just about everybody, honestly, even myself included, 
even I have the astronomy dedicated cameras here. I never shoot Milky Way with them. This is the really, really wide field stuff. You don't need a telescope to shoot Milky Way. Actually, it would be very hard to because most telescopes start at the focal lengths of like 180 millimeters, 200 millimeters and go up from there. And for Milky Way, people want to shoot wide. You want to get context with like a foreground where you can see the hills or a mountain and then the Milky Way going over. That's going to be really hard to do with a telescope. So you shoot, usually you shoot Milky Way with the camera lens, which means you're probably going to be shooting most of the Milky Way stuff with your versatile camera, like a mirrorless or a DSLR camera. That's something really wide field that can see a lot of the sky that's at right. once. That's right. Yeah. Really wide field is generally good. Fast and wide field. And then the next one is planetary. And planetary is kind of the opposite of what all photographers want. Photographers want big sensors and big pixels. And, you know, really sensitive chips that uh, just cover, a, it's a lot of real estate on the chip, right? And with planetary, you don't want that. And the best way to describe that is think about, you know, these planets in the sky don't look all that different from stars other than the fact that they're just bright. And so there are these point sources of light, right? And so they're very, very small when you consider that some, if you're taking a picture of like, let's say um, the difference between Jupiter, you look at Jupiter in the sky and then the full moon. Look how much bigger the full moon is. And then think about this. Andromeda galaxy is six full moons wide, right? So now compare Jupiter to Andromeda galaxy. It's so, so incredibly small. And if you have a big sensor, what's going to end up happening is that Jupiter is going to be a tiny little box in the middle of your screen and then everything else around it is wasted resolution on context of the sky around jupiter that you can't see anything and so it makes more sense to have a really small sensor for two reasons one because then you're dividing all of your resolution on your sensor across the planet itself and so you can have a really small sensor with really small pixels and what that allows you to do is also read out the camera very, very fast. And you can take a lot of frames per second instead of doing, you know, whereas I might take one frame every 30 minutes. Some of these cameras, you're going to do dozens and dozens of frames every single second. And Right, it's like video. Yeah, exactly. You're taking basically video frame rates. Exactly. And then what that allows you to do, because the planets are so bright, is you take all of these frames every second, you save it as a video, and then you can throw away the frames, and the software will do this for you automatically, but it's called lucky imaging, where when the atmosphere above you is stable for a fraction of a second, you got a whole bunch of frames in that fraction of a second where it was perfectly sharp. And so your software will find all of those sharp frames and stack them together to give you really crisp planetary images of Saturn or Jupiter or the moon or whatever. Um, And, you know, those planets are bright enough to do that. But if you have a small sensor, then, you know, the processing power will be able to read it out really, really fast. You can't do that with big chips. Like you could never do that, you know, 100 frames a second with a medium format sensor. It would be very, very challenging. So that's planetary. And that's another area I would just point out where CMOS uh, chips actually do. They perform do better. better because, yeah, they perform better. Yeah, you can really break, read that out, right? Yeah, read that it all, out faster. It's a game of speed. I've always called that a poor man's adaptive optics because if you look at a planet under high magnification through an eyepiece, you'll see that it's just boiling and roiling under mm-hmm. the atmosphere, right? And and every once in a while, you can maybe glimpse some detail in there. Well, this this is happening for you all automatically. Your eye, you know, can maybe catch some of these glimpses, but nothing like a CCD running at 15 frames a second 
chopping up the atmosphere into these really tiny segments. There's going to be moments where it's absolutely pristine and, 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 Adaptive optics couldn't do any better, <laughs> right? Adaptive optics, for those of you who don't know, is corrects for the atmosphere, gets rid of it, right? Uh, 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 changes the the wave front of the of the light coming at the telescope in such a way that it cancels it out. So this is a way of getting perfect seeing, yeah. uh, or at least as perfect as we're going to get under an atmosphere uh, for basically nothing. Yeah, it's really amazing. Yeah, and I always describe uh, seeing conditions like you and a friend go down a hot desert road or just a really hot road anywhere where there's some humidity and then look at each other from 100 yards away. And what you're going to see is that between you is all those heat waves and it makes everything look distorted. Right. And, you know, the person isn't actually moving. They're not really distorted. It's there. But you if you could run live video, then in those in between spaces where that person looked normal for a fraction of a second you could keep those frames but if you were trying to constantly sit there and get a picture right when it happened you would never get that image and that's why speed is everything so you can just get as many as possible to save those ones that are perfect for just a fraction of a second i want to i want to take a minute since we're talking about high magnification high resolution imaging of things like the planets uh let's talk a little bit about matching the camera to the op to the telescope because that's really important. If you want to get the most use of your camera, you should match the camera, the pixel size, all of that to your optical tube assembly itself. And one of the ways that so you have a telescope, an optical tube assembly that you may already have, it's going to have its field of view will be based on its the 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 how long the focal length is. If you imagine low magnification, low focal length gives you bigger areas of the sky, but longer focal lengths give you smaller areas of the sky. It's like the difference between looking through a paper towel tube and looking through a straw, right? It would be uh, a long focal length would be like looking through the straw and a short focal length would be like looking through a paper towel tube. You can see more of the sky. And for cameras, you, you you need to figure out what your field of view is. Like if you wanted to look at the whole camera or the whole Orion Nebula, let's say, uh, versus the entire constellation of Orion, uh, you would look at you. You need to know the width of your chip in millimeters, and you you can do some app. In, in fact, there's probably programs. There's there's calculators out there that will do this for you to tell you tell it what your uh, focal length of your telescope is and the size of your chip and it'll tell you what the field of view is there's a there's a little math you got to do a little arithmetic but that will tell you the field of view that your chip whatever size it is can see in the sky with that focal length and if you divide that number that focal length that field of view by the number of pixels that you have across your chip in one dimension that'll tell you your pixel scale how many pixels how much area of the sky can each pixel see? And that's really important because if you are, if you don't have that matched really well with your telescope, you're going to either be undersampling data or, you know, throwing away data, uh, or actually you're not going to be getting enough data if you're undersampling. And if you're oversampling, in other words, if your pixels are too big, you're going to be throwing away data. So, um, it's important to match these up as best you can. And that's why people has, tend to have different cameras for different uses, one for planetary use, one for deep sky use, and things like that. So pixel scale is an important number to remember just because it's the area of sky that each pixel 
can see and that matters for things like your drive. Let's say, for example, you have a, a telescope mount that has a periodic error of, I don't know, let's say five arc seconds. What that means is that your telescope mount is going to jiggle over the course of a few minutes by five arc seconds. It's going to go back and forth in right ascension, but by that periodic error. And if your pixel scale is one arc second, then you're going to, every image you've got is going to be picked up with these five arc second streaks, right? So you want to adjust your, your, your optical setup such that you don't see that stuff. And you'll, you'll also get blurry images uh, if you've got a lot of periodic error and small pixel scale. So this is why it's important to know, maybe not initially, but it's something you're going to want to know how to figure out for your given system. And some large pixels um, are great for very dim and tiny things that you're looking at for, for wide fields of view. And smaller pixels are better for things like the planets, like what Dustin just said. So that's a, another, you, it's, it's a matching of your detector with your optical tube assembly, which is something you want to think about when you're buying a camera. Yeah, absolutely. You have to, you have to consider the light gathering power of your system and those pixel sizes and well depth, ex just like you were saying with the atmosphere above you, what's the point of having something that's resolving 10 times better than the atmosphere above you is allowing for? You're just all you're doing is taking a really, really high quality image of atmospheric disturbance. <laughs> right. Uh, most, I think most cameras, correct me if I'm wrong, they're, they're, they're about one to two uh, uh, arc seconds per pixel on average. That's where you're trying uh, to get. And if you've got, yeah, that's where you're trying yeah, to get. Yeah, if you've got five arc seconds seeing, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're not going to get any of that, uh, yeah. any of that benefit. Yeah. So uh, this is a big part of what we do at OPT every single day. Our sales team is constantly like calculating this for people, making sure that their camera matches their, um, their telescope so that they're going to get good photos. But here's one of the ways I described it. And this also includes well depth, but let's, let's imagine this for a second. So we're trying to figure out why this is actually an issue. And so you go in your backyard and you're equipped with two things. One, you've got a thousand shot glasses. You're going to lay out in your backyard next to each other. Okay. Cause everybody has a thousand shot glasses, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Tony does. <laughs> Tony does. He throws major parties. Only, only a thousand. Yeah. Well, okay. yeah. Tony I'll, throws big I'll, parties. I'll downside. So, um, <laughs> so you're going to lay a thousand shot glasses out in your backyard, and they're going to be, you know, one after another, touching each other, and then you're going to try to replicate. You know, if we we call pixels light buckets, right? And you're going to try to replicate this by, um, you know, a you've got a platform above and you're going to stand there with a water hose spraying down into those shot glasses. And then a few feet apart, you're going to have something that just trickles water down. And this is kind of like the sky. You think about it. Some, some stars are really bright. Then you've got faint galaxies that are bringing in light and stars that just are dimmer. So they're, they're trickling in light a little less. And then you've got, you know, Betelgeuse or Sirius that is a fire hose spraying down into the yard. Okay. And you're spraying this down into those shot glasses. But remember, we just said at the beginning of this that a pixel's job is to take in photons and to quantify that so that it can tell us how much was here and which pixel next to which pixel should show a relative brightness. We need to know this one captured 100 and this one captured 3 so that it can show us this area is brighter than the other. That's how we see the stars are there or a nebula is there or whatever. And then do the same exact experiment, but instead use trash cans. And so you're going to notice two things. For one, you can fit a lot more shot glasses in your yard than you can trash cans. 
So the benefit of the shot glasses is that you get more resolution. You've got a, you know, a 60 megapixel image instead of, because you can fit 60 million instead of, you know, 10,000. But with the trash cans, you have bigger buckets. So if you're going to do a five-second exposure, you're probably not going to overflow the trash cans in five seconds. So you can actually go back and calculate how many drops are in each one. And it's not going to be wrong. But with the other ones, just about every shot glass there is going to be overflowing and spilling into the ones next to it. So you can't get a read on which ones actually had how much because they're all overflowing. That's a good visualization. So is that is it always is that always true though that the pixel size is related to well depth? In other words, how many uh, photons a given pixel? Because that no, it's not always true. It's generally true though. Okay. So if you have a nine micron pixel, the chance of it being like super shallow is not very high, unless it is a very custom chip. Uh, big pixels generally are pretty deep, and they hold a lot of um, a lot of light. And so, well, that's because of the surface area. Then that's why, because the area of silicon that a that subtends the sky in a big pixel is just going to be able to hold more. Well, that's exactly it. surface area. Just yeah. like with aperture, okay. you have more surface area. Oh, okay. 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 So right. well depth. Sure. Um, but, okay. So it is related. Yeah. But also, you think about it. It's like, well, we have to quantify this light, and so it's the only way to do it. And what you sacrifice in getting those big pixels is resolution. You just simply can't fit as many on the same size. And that's why people start buying larger and larger sensors. For deep sky astrophotography, you think, well, if I go from a micro four thirds, a small sensor up to APS-C or full frame, then I can fit more pixels onto that, whether it means I get higher resolution or just bigger pixels for more sensitivity, either way, you've got a benefit here, you know? And so that's why people keep chasing the bigger and bigger sensors. And that's, that's the real advantage. The more real estate you have, the more you can fit on there, both in size and quantity. Yeah. Bigger, or more pixels means more detail, especially if they're smaller, yep. you can, you can make out the details of, because each pixel subtends an area of the sky. If you've got a huge pixel, you're going to miss some of the detail that's in that area of sky yeah. that that pixel can see, whereas a smaller pixel would, would catch it. Uh, you would be able to see that detail. Yeah. So. If it, if it collects the light in the first place, you know, and that's the thing is that those small pixels are just not as sensitive. And so, you know, it's, just which one catches more light you put put the you know put a dumpster in a rainstorm and put a shot glass in the rainstorm which one catches more water um right you know the bigger the pixel the more you're going to catch with it it's a bigger light bucket but that's kind of um man we we dug into a lot it's already been an hour and actually i have a call (laughs) i have a call in three minutes so we probably better all right all right well i'll tell you what we'll go ahead and and call this episode here um we have not gotten into uh brands of 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 ccds and things like that so part two will be coming up we'll probably do that next week uh to finish this up so uh this is a good introduction i think i hope this is helping you guys to understand uh, a little bit of some of the basics of ccds and give you the background of why some of the things some of these characteristics are important and help you choose the best camera for whatever it is your your needs are and uh when we come back with the next part of this we'll talk about the brands themselves we'll talk about some of the individual brands that are available and some of their uh pluses and minuses and things like that as well as cost so uh we'll be back next week to talk more about that um I'll go ahead and close this episode out. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. 
Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.